argue with a child who absolutely believed that they were right, even in the face of, even in the face of clear evidence to the contrary. You got to do that. Yeah. Uh, if you got young children, you're like, absolutely. I, and I was actually thinking, if you ever had a teenager in your house, right? I, I mean, they just go through that phase, right? Where they know everything. And even though you're like, look, I've, I've, I've been there. I've done that. I got the shirt. They just, they don't, they don't believe you. They got to go through it um, themselves. And as a parent, like there are times when you just, you got to just kind of smile and, and, and it's like, like, not like, okay, um, whatever. Like you, you go ahead and do whatever you think you need to do. And like, we know, right? Because we've been there. We, we know that what they're going to face is not going to be pleasant. And yet, Mm, there's a little satisfaction, right? <laughs> that this is not going to be good for you, and I'm sorry about that, but it's going to be a little good for me because <laughs> then maybe next time you'll listen a little bit. And that, I don't know, that just doesn't seem to happen very often. I, I think the challenge for us, so if, you're, if you're a parent or a grandparent or something, I think the challenge for us is that uh, we're not always right, though, and I, I'd hope you were prepared for that, unless not a shock to you. Um, apparently, like, we know a lot, right? We've been through a lot. We, we've, we've seen and, and faced a lot of those difficulties, but we just were not always right. We don't know the future, e- even though it seems like that. Sometimes we can kind of see what's coming, but we don't know the future. And, and, and the truth is that we can be wrong. But God, it's our heavenly Father, God is never wrong. And, and not only does God know the future and, and what's going to happen, this is the crazy part, not only does he know what's going to happen, he controls it. So there's no, like, there's, like we can't escape that, right? God not only knows the future, but if somehow we could find a way to go our own, like do our own thing, He still is in control. And if he wants to, he can just make us do whatever he thinks we ought to do. So so God knows the future and he controls the future. And so when God speaks of consequences for actions, right? If if you do this, this is going to happen. He's not just talking about what he expects to happen like a parent would. We would go, look, if you make this choice, if you make this, if you get into debt as a young person, you buy all those things on credit, you are going to, like, it's expected you're going to have problems. But God is not just talking about what's expected. He has the power to bring about the consequences that he said in the beginning would come. So he's over it all. We're trying to figure out in this series how to follow a God that maybe we don't really know. And, and it's kind of how to come out of the darkness of our sin and walk in what Paul calls the light of life that never ends. And at some point, we've got to come face to face with the reality that God is sovereign over all things, including us. And, and, and that just means that God has ultimate command and control over everything in all creation. And just because he allows us to choose 
the direction that we go or the path of our life, he never gives up control. Okay? So he allows us to choose, but he never gives up control. And so we have this sovereign God who not only knows the future, he controls the future, and yet he gives us freedom to do the things that we choose to do, right? He says, like, if you go this way, you're, you're going to face difficulty and, and struggle. But if that's the way you want to go, I'm going to let you go that way. But ultimately, God never gives up the control of everything in creation. And, and so as each of us begin to follow God, we must deal with this reality, this reality, and it's our bottom line today, that God is uh, sovereign and that the sovereignty of God requires my surrender to God. The sovereignty of God requires my surrender to God. Each of us persons, we're trying to follow this God that we don't know, as we're talking about the Israelite people, right? They knew about God. They knew of God. They didn't really know God. And certainly the Egyptians didn't know God. And the nations around Israel and around Egypt, they didn't know God. And so in this one kind of, kind of big, expansive event called the Exodus in the Bible, God is not only revealing himself to the Israelite people, but also to the Egyptians and to every nation on earth. And, and oftentimes I think we read the story of the Exodus and we think, is it like, just like the Israelites, we think it's all about them. It's all about God rescuing them and calling them and getting them out of slavery and into the promised land. But, but really, God's plan is incredibly more expansive than just the Israelite people. And so for the Israelites, for the Egyptians, for every nation, um, they have to come to this point where at, at, like they go, okay, God, you're sovereign, and so I have to surrender. So every person, every nation, every people that recognizes there's a sovereign God comes to this like sticky point in our lives where we, we like, am I willing to give up control of my own life to God? And, and that's, a, that's a tough place, right? I mean, that's tough for us that have been following God for a long time because we often like we very easily slip back into I know what's best I've got this covered I can I can handle it I think that the problem that we we get into though in in this moment where like okay I, I recognize that there's a God and, and now he's sovereign and now I have to make a choice about whether or not I, I, I follow him I surrender to him or I kind of go my own way and the, the problem I think that we run into is that, is that we think in our lives that we have an incredible amount of control of us and the things that go on around us. If you've ever been in a wreck, you know, that, that wasn't your fault, <laughs> you, 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 you come to realize really quickly that you have very little control over the things that happen in your life. And, and, and I think that that's part of life, that we're fooled into thinking that we can control the outcome of events. I, if, if you're a parent, we talked about that just a minute ago. If you're a parent and you've got kids and you're trying to get them to understand it to grow, we have this idea that we can control 
what they do or what happens to them or the direction that they, that they go in life. And, and we, <laughs> we have no control over those things. And, and you, you look at families, you see, okay, these two kids, they were raised in the same family, they're raised by the same values, they have the same kind of circumstances, and they have shared experiences, and yet um, one goes this way and one goes that way. And so we, we, we fake like we have a lot of control in our lives, but the reality is we, have, we really have zero control over the things that happen around us and, 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 and really often to us. And so we're going to dive back into the Exodus um, story today, and, and I want us to see that whether we're talking about um, Pharaoh, uh, whether we're talking about Egypt as a, as a nation or the Israelites or us personally, each of us has to fight the idea that we're the king of our own lives, right? So that's the, that's the moment, that's the struggle when I have to go, okay, I, I am not the king of my own life. And, and if I'm not the king, then somebody else is. And, and that means that I can't simply do whatever I want to do. That there's somebody else on the throne that I owe uh, what Matthew Bates calls allegiance to. I owe allegiance to. We kind of, maybe we've lost that understanding of that word as, as we've gotten away from, you know, monarchies and things like that. But if, but if God is sovereign and he's the king and he's in control and I'm not and I recognize that, then my allegiance is owned to him. And so, you know, in our lives, we try to control our little kingdoms, just like Pharaoh tried to control his kingdom. And we realize it at some point, if you're a person of faith, you, you kind of realize at some point that, that you are just a, a child arguing with a parent who watches the consequences of your decisions go from bad to worse. And, and, and so in life, for the most part, we're the children, right? And we're going to God like, no, God, you don't understand. I've got this. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to do this. I'm, God, you don't know. Like, you haven't experienced what's going on in my life and my parents and my situation. This is my only choice, and this is what I'm going to do. And, and God's just like, ah, oh, he's shaking his head. Like, like you just don't, you don't get it. So, um, if you aren't completely familiar with the Exodus story, and, and in particular, the, the ten plagues, um, I'm going to explain that today. So, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming at you today. Um, and... and, and so I just want to explain that and, and kind of get it out there. And but wait, um, um, there's not enough time to explain it. I'm going to sum it up for you today. So we're going to get the abridged um, version. That's, uh, uh, that's my goal today. So um, what started out as peaceful coexistence between Egypt and the people of Israel. And, and let me tell you, um, I, I've seen those bumper stickers, coexist bumper stickers. And that can happen for a while. Right? We, we can coexist for a while. But eventually, somebody is going to go, I'm the king. And you all should do what I want you to. And then it becomes very difficult to coexist at, the, at that point. And so Israel and Egypt, they coexisted together. Everything was great. They each kind of stayed in their air, uh, Israel and Goshen and everybody else down here in, in, in Egypt. And, 
And, and they really, like, they respected each other. They, they traded with each other. They got, they, it, like, everything was great. And then eventually, um, eventually the Egyptians, through the Pharaoh kind of weaving stories, the Egyptians became hostile toward, uh, toward the Israelites. Um, the, the people that, Israelite people were called Hebrews, uh, uh, Hebrew people. And so they become hostile to the Israelite or the Hebrew people. And, and for about 250 years, Egypt subjected Israel to slavery. And so Egypt has uh, so oppressed the Hebrew people that the whole nation of Israel, uh, or na- nation of Egypt, excuse me, basically looks at the, the Hebrew people as, as subhuman, right? And we've experienced that in our own nation. Uh, and all around the world still, there are groups of people that look at other groups of people and go, you don't have rights. I'm the king. I make the rules. And, and you, don't get to, you don't get to make the rules. So they take that ability away. And so the Egyptian people as a nation looked at the Israelites like that. You, you don't deserve the same kind of rights and dignities that we as uh, Egyptians deserve. And so that meant that they could treat the Israelites however they wanted to, right? So as soon as we, as soon as we degrade somebody's humanity, then we can treat them however we want. And there's no consequences. And so through a string of events, God introduces himself to this guy named Moses, and he instructs Moses to go back to Egypt because God is going to free the Israelite people from their slavery. And so that is like God's primary purpose, to free the Israelite people from slavery. But that is not God's only purpose. And so in Exodus 7, 5, uh, we read this. When this happens, God says, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so right away, we're, we're, we're told, so the, God's primary purpose is to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, to free them from that, uh, that, that slavery. But then he goes on to say, while I'm doing this, this primary purpose, the rest of Egypt is going to know that I am the Lord. And so God wants the Israelite slavery to end, but he also wants the Egyptian people to see that he is the one true God. And so he's going to reveal himself to Israel, right? Remember, they knew about him. They didn't really know him. But he's also going to reveal himself to Egypt as a nation because they're all going to witness the plagues as well. He's going to reveal himself to Pharaoh even in a more personal way because Moses and Aaron are going to be talking directly to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is making the decisions for the rest of the nation. And then even beyond that, as the things happen in Egypt and Israel, as we know today, national um, powers and struggles, they don't happen in a vacuum. And so the rest of the world is going to know what's going on in Egypt between the Israelites and the Egyptian people. And the fame of God, the knowledge of God is going to spread really to the entire world. And so God decides that the way he's going to accomplish all of these like multifaceted purposes is through a series of plagues. And the plagues have some interesting um, attributes to them. And, and probably as we go through these, you're going you're to be like, oh, I remember that one. Oh, I remember um, that one. We're, we're going to, by the way, be in Exodus um, chapter 7, and we're going to go all the way through to Exodus chapter 12, the end of Exodus chapter 12. We've got a lot of ground to... Um, 
cover today. So you're probably going to recognize some of the um, plagues. You're going to go, oh yeah, I remember that one, I remember that one. But I think there are going to be some things today that we're going to talk about that you probably hadn't thought about um, before. Um, and and, and some, some interesting things that are going on within the plagues themselves that, that, that I've missed for a long time. Okay, so hopefully you're gonna, we're going to learn some things together um, today. So uh, interesting attributes about, um, about the plagues. Uh, the plagues got progressively worse. Okay, so from the first one to the last one, there's a vast difference in the harm that comes to the Egyptian people. And, and there's going to be a lot of people. Look, there's a lot of um, unchurched people or people that maybe kind of know the Bible, but, they're, but they're, they're frustrated with God, right? They don't, they don't like the king, basically. Um, and they're going to look at the story of, of Exodus and they're going to go, uh, God is a bully, and so he's, he's picking on poor Egypt, and he's setting the terms, but then he's also the one providing the escape. And so that seems kind of odd. Like, why didn't God just not do the plagues and still help the people know him? And, and if, you have, if you have children, if you've ever been in the work, like, you know, that doesn't work that way. It doesn't work. We have to learn things on our own, Right? We have to experience the things on our own in order to learn the things that we need to learn so we don't make the same mistakes moving forward. And so this is, this is what's happening with the plagues. I'll tell you, had Pharaoh and the Egyptians recognized God's position as sovereign after the first plague, there would have been no other plagues. And not only would, would the Israelites have been freed but the nation of Egypt as a whole would come to know God, and it would have been the perfect outcome. But, but it doesn't happen that way, just like it doesn't happen that way in our lives. So the, the, the plagues get progressively worse. Um, the plagues then make a distinction between the Egyptian people and the Hebrew people. And, and so God is like, it, um, because there's lots of other things going on, God wants to make a distinction between the God of the Hebrew people and the multiple gods of all the other nations, including Egypt, around. And so these plagues, they show the complete weakness of the multitude of false gods that the Egyptians worshipped, and the complete power and control, command and control, of the god of the Hebrew people. Um, remember, he introduced himself as Yahweh to them. I am who I am. And so he has um, power and control over everything and everyone, and he is sovereign. And that's part of what the people need to learn through this process. And so that we see that God um, cares for the people, even in the midst of the consequences that they're facing. You see that within the plagues. And so when we talk about the plagues, it's important to know that each of the plagues was a direct challenge. Each of the plagues was a direct challenge by God to the false gods of, of Egypt. So every one of the plagues that we're going to look at real quickly, every one of the plagues, there was a distinct um, false god that the Egyptian people worshipped that was tied to that um, plague. And, and so we'll, um, we'll look at some of those. Um, like most nations of the day, uh, Egyptians had many gods that they worshipped. And so each of those plagues was meant to display the utter helplessness of Egypt's gods and the complete sovereignty of the Hebrew god. That's how the plagues were, were set up. And so let's, um, let's look at them really quickly. Uh, the, the first plague is that the Nile River turns 
to blood. So Moses and Aaron go out there. They're talking to Pharaoh. Aaron holds his staff over the water, and the Nile turns to blood, and the fish die, and it stinks, and it's, and it's disgusting. Now, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile as a god. Um, because the Nile is what provided water. Like, remember, Egypt is the desert, okay? Um, and so without water, they don't survive. And so the Nile brought water to Egypt, and that, they survived by the Nile. And so they began to worship the Nile, that a god that was uh, over the Nile. And, and they began to worship the Nile as though it provided life for them. Okay? So this is the same thing that happens through every single one of um, of, of these plagues. So the Nile was a life-giving force for Egypt. They were completely dependent on water from the Nile, uh, again, because Egypt is a desert, and so they worshiped the Nile as, as a god. The second plague that comes is the plague of frogs. Yuck, frogs. Um, now, frogs were associated with the, with the Nile, um, and they, they were represented by the god Hecate, and it was the goddess of fertility. I don't know why frogs are associated with fertility, but anyway, uh, fertility, water, and renewal. And this God that they worshiped had the head of a frog. So when God brings the plague of frogs at Moses' command, right? Moses and Aaron say, all right, you're going to have frogs. And then the frogs appear. And then later, um, Pharaoh says, oh, please take away the frogs. And they say, okay, uh, the frogs are gone. And then they die. It's not... It's not the god Hecate controlling the frogs. It obviously is the god of the Hebrew people. So this is what's happening with every single one of, um, of the plagues. God is showing his complete and utter control over all of these natural things that the Egyptians worshipped as gods and goddesses. And so God is, is um, showing them that he is the number one god. So after these first two plagues, the Egyptian magicians were able to reproduce what Moses and Aaron had done. Okay, so this, this just, ah, oh, it's just so dumb. Um, it, it, and it's, very, it's so dumb, but it's you and me, right? It's our story. So Moses and, and Aaron go to, uh, go to Pharaoh, and they go, okay, you know, let my people go. And he says, no. And so go, okay, turn the uh, water of the Nile into blood. And Pharaoh goes, big deal. And he calls in his magicians and he says, hey, magicians, I want you to turn even more of the water of Egypt into blood. And they're like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, Pharaoh. And so they do their little magic chants and their little, little dance. And there's, look, there's some spiritual demonic things going on. And so not just the water of the Nile that turns to blood, but then the Egyptian magicians turn the rest of the water in Egypt into blood. Good job. We do that, right? Uh, we have a consequence for something that we do, and, and we go, I'm not, I, don't, I don't care. I'm going to keep doing it. And then the consequence gets worse. And then we go, God, why did you let this happen? Uh. So the same thing happens with the frogs. All these frogs come out of the Nile, and Pharaoh calls in his magicians and goes, hey, do you think you could reproduce this uh, thing? Um, by, by the god Hecate, and they're like, yeah. And so they do their little chant, they do their little dance, and they bring even more frogs onto the people of Egypt. Uh, yippee. And it's just, it's absolutely ridiculous what they're like, you're making it worse, you dummy. Just stop. Quit doing this. Um, but, but unlike uh, God, right, Pharaoh 
doesn't care about the suffering of his people. And so in chapter 7, verse 23, uh, we, we read this, that Pharaoh went back to his palace after, the, after he made it worse. He went back to his palace and never gave it a second thought. What he never gave a second thought to was the suffering of his people. You just made life worse for your own people and you don't care. This is the difference between Pharaoh and, and God. Okay, the um, next uh, plague was an infestation of gnats. And this is the first plague that Pharaoh's magi- uh, magicians are unable to reproduce, which is good for the Egyptian people. Um, so it's also the first time that Pharaoh's magicians, since we're three plagues into what's going on, and it's the first time that Pharaoh's magicians concede that the plagues are from the Hebrew God. So even Pharaoh's own magicians, who have reproduced the first two plagues, come to Pharaoh and they're like, look, we, we can't reproduce this and you need to pay attention because what's happening is coming from the God that Moses and Aaron worship, the Hebrew God. But that doesn't go anywhere. And so the next infestation is of flies. And with this plague, uh, the fourth plague, God begins to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So the first three plagues, they happened both in Egypt and in Goshen, where the Israelites lived. But by the fourth plague, God is going, look, you're not getting it. I'm going to make it really clear that I'm the God who's doing this. And so um, with the flies, there's flies in Egypt, but if you cross over the border into Goshen, there's no flies. So they, they can tell, they can see that there's a distinction between the Egyptian people and um, the, the Hebrew people. And so this is also the first time that Moses tells Pharaoh, the flies will come tomorrow. And so um, the other, the, the other uh, uh, plagues happen like immediately. Moses asks, Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says, no. And so, okay, boom, here it is. This one, the fourth one, he says, okay, tomorrow. And so what's happening is we see the grace of God. Remember, God is trying to introduce himself to, to the Egyptian people and the Israelite people. And so God is giving Pharaoh the opportunity to repent and to recognize who he is. And so, oh, okay, look, I'm going to give you some time to think about the last three plagues that have happened and the plague that I'm going to bring. And if you repent and, and recognize and let my people go, I won't bring the plague of flies. That, that's why he does this tomorrow. So God's giving Pharaoh and his people time to repent, to seek forgiveness before the plague cl- comes. But you know the story. They don't do that. And so for all of these plagues, these first four plagues, they are nuisances to the people of Egypt. But they have not affected Egypt's ability to survive at all. So it's been a problem, but it hasn't really, um, it hasn't really stopped. The, it's like it's their quality of life has been affected, but not their, the, the sustenance of their life, okay? It hasn't affected their, their food. It hasn't affected other things. Nobody's died. Like it's just, it's just a, a, a nuisance. They can still get water. They can still get crops and meat and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's been enough that they should have taken God seriously, but not so much that their lives were like um, at, at stake. And so here we go into uh, bigger things. The uh, fifth one is mass animal deaths. And so many of the animals in Egypt, not all of them, but many of them would die in whatever plague this was. 
Um, and um, the, the animals that were going to die are either sacred to the Egyptian peoples. There's a lot of animals that were related to the gods, and so they were sacred. Or they use the animals in sacrifices. So now God is beginning to mess with some more. The God of the Hebrew people is beginning to mess with the Egyptian gods and with the Egyptian worship of their gods. So he's like um, raising the stakes. He's messing with the worship. Um, and, and so this was going like, to be a problem, right? Because now the Egyptians feel like our own gods are going to be angry with us because we're not able to make these sacrifices and stuff. So, so God's like turning up the heat. The sixth plague was um, sores or boils on all the people. Now, this is the first plague that affects the Egyptian people themselves, the people living in, in Egypt. And, and, and here's why this is a big one. The Egyptians were clean people. In fact, the Egyptians, it was really easy for Pharaoh to get them to hate the Israelite people because the Israelite people were um, like farmers and, and ranchers. And Egyptians thought those jobs were um, demeaning. The Egyptians believed themselves to be very clean people. They, they bathed a lot. They used a lot of perfumes and things like that. And so um, they, they, they thought that with their medicine and the gods that they worshipped, they were just very clean for that time period. And the Israelites, they thought, were dirty and gross. And so as the Egyptians have these boils and these sores and stuff that break out on them, they all of a sudden become unclean. And so what happens is um, an Egyptian who had uh, breakouts on their body couldn't go into the temples to worship their gods, and they couldn't go into the presence of Pharaoh. So the magicians that have been showing up and been talking to Pharaoh, they can't talk to Pharaoh anymore. Because they're dirty and they can't, they can't go to Pharaoh. In fact, the only people who really can get into Pharaoh to talk to him are Moses and Aaron. Because the sores haven't affected them because they're Israelites. And so, you see, God's messing with the worship of, uh, of, of their gods. Okay, um, number seven is uh, thunder and then deadly hail. So several interesting things happen with this um, plague. Um, Moses, before this plague, tells Pharaoh it's going to get worse before it gets better. He's like, buckle up, Pharaoh. It, this is going to start getting um, bad, and you need to be prepared to either surrender or to suffer. And this is the first plague um, that Moses tells the Egyptians how to avoid uh, uh, the plague. He, he's like, look, the, the, the thunder and hail, and it's going to kill. It's going to, like, destroy your crops. It's going to kill your animals. It's going to kill anybody who's outside. But if you bring your animals and your people inside, if they're protected, they won't die. So God's making a distinction between what is left out and what is, what is brought in. Um, and so if they have shelter. So in um, chapter 9, verse 19, you read this. Uh, Moses says, you have better give orders for every person and animal in Egypt to take shelter. Because if they don't, they're going to die. And so what happens is the story is the officials and the leaders of, with Pharaoh of the people, they, they run home. Like they've seen what God has done. They run home. They get all their servants. They get all their animals. They get all their crops out of as, like, as fast as they can and get them protected. And the people who were stubborn like Pharaoh and didn't believe in the God of Hebrews left their servants, their families, their flocks and, 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 and herds and everything out in the fields. And then they lost them. So it's a very devastating thing. And this is the first plague that affects people and animals and crops. So the gods of, of Egypt, and, and so God is like 
bringing judgment on all of these uh, at the same time. The eighth plague was uh, locusts, and here's where things get bad. The flax and the barley crops uh, that were key to the Egyptians, uh, weren't key to the Egyptian survival. Uh, flax they used to make clothing, and barley they used to make alcohol. Uh, so that's what the Egyptians did with them. Those two crops were destroyed in the hail, um, but the wheat which they eat had not, um, had, had not grown enough. And so the, the hail didn't destroy that crop. So, so we have the grace of God. We also see that there's a little wider time period in between one plague and the next than you actually get when you read the story. So there's time that has passed. And so uh, this is the first time that Pharaoh's officials begin to disagree with his decision. They start going, um, Pharaoh, wait a minute, excuse me, <laughs> maybe you ought to rethink your uh, way that you're handling um, the Israelite people. Uh, and so uh, this also is the first time that, that Pharaoh threatens Moses with death. And, and he, basically, he basically says, look, your God had better protect you because if I ever let you go, that's the day you die. So Pharaoh is openly challenging this God who's done all of these um, terrible plagues, brought them all on, on the people. So the locusts destroy like everything that is being left out. Plague number nine is this darkness, utter darkness. In fact, the scripture says that it's darkness that could be felt. And, and look, I don't know. Okay, if you're going to ask me, I don't know. I, I know that scripture says there was darkness in Egypt and it was light in Goshen. And it wasn't just dark like it's an eclipse and it's kind of dark. It, it was dark like they said they couldn't, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. I don't know how God does that. I don't, I don't know if he, if he just temporarily blinded the people or, or what. I, I don't know. But it was different. And apparently you could walk from Egypt to uh, Israel to Goshen and, and like dark light, dark light, dark light. It's crazy. I, I don't know. But it was the most powerful plague to this point, and it was an attack on the greatest god of the Egyptians, the god Ra, the sun god. In, in fact, a later pharaoh is going to try and um, convince all of Egypt to disregard every other god that they serve and only serve the god Ra. And um, so it's a big deal. This was a sure display of God's power over the natural world. And it was also a metaphor for the spiritual darkness that the Egyptians were in. Like he's like, you're, you're too blind to see what is obviously going on. I'm just going to make everything dark for you physically. Um, so you're in the dark physically like you are spiritually. Okay. Uh, plague number 10 is the death of the firstborn uh, male, both human and, and animal. And like plague seven, the Egyptians were told the way to avoid the plague if they would choose to obey the directions of uh, the God of, of Israel. So, so um, taking the blood of the Passover lamb and painting it on the doorposts and the lintel of their, their homes so that, that when death came, it would pass over those homes that were tech protected by the blood. Now, now, obviously, there's huge ties to, to Jesus and his blood that protects us and the sin passes over and all of that. Um, but we're not talking about that today. We're talking about um, God getting to know or the people getting to know, um, getting to know God. So this is the final plague. It's the plague that forces Pharaoh 
to release the Israelite people. In fact, Pharaoh does exactly what God says. Uh, Pharaoh goes to the, to the Israelite people and, and he doesn't just say, okay, you can go. He says, please leave. <laughs> please leave. We can't take this anymore. Like, okay, like I surrender. <laughs> please um, go. But the 10th plague is not actually the last consequence for Egypt's rejection. There's actually more to come. Even after all of this, Pharaoh and his army, after a few days, they pursue the Israelites to the Gulf of Aqaba. And then in a fit of rage and pride, Pharaoh sacrifices not only himself, but all of his army. And they go down into the water and pursue the Israelites. And, and, and the water comes, you know, the story says the water comes down and it, and it buries them all. And so instead of recognizing the all-encompassing power of God, Pharaoh and his army plunge ahead to their death. And the last false god Yahweh had to defeat was Pharaoh himself. Now that was a, a lot, and I understand that. But we've got a lot in common with this story. God is constantly revealing his power and his grace to us if we are willing to see it. And God's goal is our surrender to him, but it's for our own benefit, right? God doesn't need us. God is perfect. He is holy. He is awesome by himself. He does not need us. He wants us. He wants us to experience life and hope and health um, with him. Uh, and, and he knows we can't get that without him. And so God's goal is our surrender, but it's for our benefit. So we're not selling ourselves to these false gods like the Egyptians were, these false gods ultimately of money and power and sex, because they're interested in our slavery, not our success. You see, all of these things are happening, and the story of the Exodus is so much bigger than just the Israelites being free from slavery. The Egyptian people were slaves to the gods that they worshipped, because ultimately, even though they had a bunch of different names, you would worship the gods of Egypt in order to gain money, or power, or men, or, or women, or pleasure. That's why you worship. That's why you gave things, so that you would get back the things that you want, and they always controlled you more than they set you free. And so ultimately, the gods that we worship are the same gods that the Egyptians worshiped. They just had a bunch of different names for them. And so while God is trying to rescue us from the slavery of sin, he's also trying to rescue others through us. Remember, God's primary purpose was to release Israel from their slavery, and God wants to release us and every person from our own personal slavery to sin. But the purposes of God are much greater than that. It's just not our freedom from slavery to sin, but he wants to rescue others through us. Like the Egyptians and the rest of the world, knowing God through this event that's going on called the Exodus. As we turn our lives over to him and we surrender other people can see what he's doing in our lives, and they will want that for themselves too. And so ultimately, Pharaoh is me, or I'm Pharaoh. Because over and over again, I pretend that I'm the God of my own life. 
that I can control my own life, that I can do what I want when I want. And so for each and every one of us, for all of us, the last God that must be defeated by the God is me. And so all of the plagues that God brings on Egypt and Pharaoh, we see are really about getting to this place, trying to get Pharaoh to recognize your not God. And, and as Pharaoh, he absolutely believed he was a God. That's why he threatens Moses. He says, your God doesn't scare me. I'll kill you myself because I'm just as powerful as your God. And when we make our own decisions and we go our own ways and we do our own things, we're saying, I'm God and I'm in control of my own life. What's the first commandment that God is going to give Moses when they get out of Egypt and they get to Mount Sinai? Do you remember what it is? Oh, it's close. It comes right after that. It's in Deuteronomy 5.7. The number one command is, you shall have no other gods before me. And what's the last god that we have to defeat? So it's easy to get caught up in all the excitement and the speed of the story of, of Exodus, but it really is about one thing, that all of humanity, that every individual will know that the God of the Israelites is the one true God. And so eight times in this narrative story from seven to the end of chapter 12, eight times we're told that God is doing this, whatever he's doing, the plagues. God is doing this so that the Egyptians, the Israelites, and the whole world will know God. So let me speed through these. Chapter 7, verse 5. God says, when this happens, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And in verse 17, the Lord is going to do something to show you that he really is the Lord. And in 8.10, then everyone will discover that there is no God like the Lord, Lord Yahweh. Uh, in 8.23, that's how you will know that the Lord, Yahweh, is here in Egypt. This is not your own gods. It's the God that is here and in control. In 9.14, then you will find out that no one can oppose the Lord. In 9.29, you will know that the earth belongs to the Lord. And in 10.2, then all of you will know that I am the Lord. And in 11.7, then you Egyptians will know that the Lord is good to the Israelites even while he punishes you. And that's what happens. In chapter 12, verse 38, we read this. Many other people went with them as well. When the Israelites left Egypt, many other people went with them. Why? Because they surrendered to the God of the Israelite people. As they went through the plagues, they went, okay, our gods are nothing, and your God is everything. Wherever you go, we're going to go. And so when the Israelites left Egypt, it wasn't just the Israelites. Like God's primary purpose, 
It was a whole bunch of Egyptian people and other nationalities of people who lived there, and everybody got to go. And as we look at the plagues, plague number seven and plague number 10, both of those times where Moses says, look, if you want to avoid the plague, you got to obey the rule, right? Whatever it is. And there was no distinction made between the Israelite people and the Egyptian people or other nationality people. He simply said, if you obey, you're going to be saved. And it's the same today. <laughs> there's no nationality, there's no people, there's no race, there's no gender that's excluded from the saving grace that's found in Jesus Christ. If you obey, you can be saved. Like this is it. Here it is. It's for all people everywhere. And in the Exodus story, God was sharing that in the very beginning. You don't know me, but I'm going to express myself. I'm going to show myself to you. I'm going to introduce myself to you. And here's how you're going to know that I have grace for all people and it doesn't matter. Yes, I'm the God of the Israelite people and that's who I've chosen to show who I am to the rest of the world but if you obey you can be a part of what's going on and so God wants to make himself known not because he needs us but because he wants us to know freedom and peace and hope instead of slavery and death and helplessness and just like Pharaoh and many of the Egyptians we refuse and we're stubborn by the way, those two words, refuse and stubborn, or forms of them, are mentioned nine and then 15 times in these chapters, 7 to 12. Refuse, stubborn, refuse, stubborn, refuse, stubborn. And that, and that probably is, is a, are good words to describe us, right? In many cases, I refuse to do what God wants me to. I'm stubborn and I do my own thing. So what's the takeaway as we consider what does it mean to follow this God that I don't really know? Well, um, you, you might have missed it uh, with all the other more flashy stuff going on in the story of, of Exodus in, in, the, in the text, but, um, but here it is. Obedience precedes deliverance. Obedience precedes deliverance. And that's really the story that we find here in, in, in the Exodus. There's over and over, it's like obey, and then you're going to be delivered. Obey, and then delivered. The plagues were set up to help Israel, Egypt, and Pharaoh, and ultimately all nations see that God was the only real and true God. And those who obeyed were saved and they were freed, not only from slavery under Pharaoh, but slavery to the false gods that really weren't gods at all and couldn't protect or provide for them. So every one of us, even now, if you're a believer, we have false gods that we're following. And the hardest false god for us to kill off and to stop following is the God of self. It's the God of me. But Jesus did it. Jesus came and lived as a human to show us how to live. So he prayed on the night before he went to the cross. Not my will, but your will be done. And that's what surrender looks like. We may not be perfect, um, but the goal of discipleship is to look more like Jesus every day. In every area of our life, going, I may want to do this, but God, not my will, your will. 
So even though I want to go this way, even though I want to do, do this thing, even though she's really pretty, even though that thing makes me feel good, or even this thing numbs me out to the pain that I'm feeling, um, this is the way I want to go, but your will be done, and you've called me to this, and so this is the way I'm going to go, even though I want to go that way. Some of you here today may be in the process. This Maybe we all should be in killing off the gods that have ruled your life. Remember that obedience precedes deliverance. If you're not willing to obey, to follow, to repent, to believe, to be baptized, then you can't really say that you've surrendered. Those things are tied together. And so our gospel definition begins with Jesus the King. Because we want to be constantly reminded who the King is and it's not us. And it ends with our desire to daily surrender to Jesus' reign. To daily recognize, God, your will be done, not my will. So I just want to leave you with this. Is there something in your life that you haven't surrendered yet? Some area, some thing, some God that you continue to follow, that you haven't surrendered, keeps you doing your own thing instead of the will of God. And, the, and maybe today is the day that you kill that off. Maybe it's yourself. Father, it is so difficult to surrender because we feel like when we surrender, we're giving up control, and yet we really never had control in the first place. And so, um, God, it's difficult for us in the flesh, but you have given us your spirit to help us each and every day. Your, your word says to cut away the sin the places in our lives where we're following the gods of ultimately money or power or pleasure. God, and God really, the last God that you've got to defeat is, is me. And so would you strip away everything that comes between me and you? And would you help me to follow, to be unashamed, to follow without um, fear of consequence, to follow wholeheartedly without turning back and, and God really just to surrender my will my way to your will and your ways and through that that I would look more like your son Jesus every day help us God to do that this week in Jesus name Amen. thanks guys see you next week Thanks for tuning in to Real Life Live. Our hope and prayer is that the time you've spent with us has left you encouraged and challenged in your faith. It may have also left you with some questions or maybe wondering how all this faith stuff works. So we want to help you with that. Head over to reallifecc.us for a few different ways we can connect. We're thankful you joined us today and want to extend an invitation for you to join us in person at our current home in El Dorado, Kansas at the Civic Center, 201 East Central on Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope You'll keep tuning in and growing in your faith to look more like Jesus every day. See you next time.